Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Anglican 101, a history of the Anglican Communion, led by Father Christopher Rodriguez, is a dynamic and educational study that vividly teaches how the Anglican Church was established, beginning with the Old Testament and continuing through present day. So we're going to dive in today. Today we're going to look at session six, which is the growth of the Anglican Church. Last week we looked at the church in the United States. This week we're going to look at Uh, the Episcopal Church, and we're going to look at the movement worldwide of the British Empire and also the concomitant growth of the Church of England and then the emergence of the Anglican Communion. Um, uh, Just by way of reminder, the growth of the Episcopal Church, by the way, TEC is sort of an insider's uh, acronym for the Episcopal Church. Uh, Interestingly, if you remember from last week, we talked about the Episcopal Church being essentially Anglicans after the Revolutionary War. And so it was pretty small and it was sort of considered suspect by a lot of people, you know, loyalists in the crown and all that jazz, until about 1880s. And um, the Victorian part of the, of the Victorian, uh, Queen Victoria and the expansion of the empire was also um, during something called the Oxford Movement in England. The Oxford Movement came from Oxford, England, and it was a group of uh, men known as the Tractarians, as the Oxford Movement, and what they were trying to do was getting the Church of England to revert back to its understanding of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It had sort of morphed into this sort of state church thing, and the Oxford Movement guys, which were high churchmen for the most part, uh, were trying to reconnect the Church of England to a more Catholic, under, little c, Catholic understanding of the church. That guy right there is a guy by the name of Bishop Hobart of New York, Uh, doubled his diocese in 20 years. There's another guy you may know, uh, if you're from Wisconsin, you would definitely know, a guy named Jackson Kemper. And he was a missionary bishop to the West, which at that point was like Wisconsin. And he he planted churches all throughout there, founded Neshota House Seminary, where he is buried. And uh, the Episcopal Church grew after World War II uh, to 3.4 million members in 1960. So that was the sort of the high water mark of the numerically anyway. And relative to the population, that's a pretty big number, considering that today the number of Episcopalians is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.5 million and a much larger population. We're going to get to that in a moment as far as growth and decline. And my personal opinion that um, we are going to have growth in, again. Um, Let's look at the Anglican Communion. So what is this Anglican Communion thing? If you remember from last week, when the Church of England expanded into the Roman colony, Roman, the American colonies, they brought with with them the Church of England, right? They planted churches. We talked about that last time. And then the communion began, the the, uh, empire began to spread rapidly, as you know. And so with, as the, as the uh, communion would spread, they would bring missionaries from the Church of England. And the Anglican Communion came about sort of by accident, actually. It wasn't really planned. And as you know, uh, all Church of England bishops had to take an oath of loyalty to the crown. And that has since ceased. But the idea was, it was essentially the Church of England as the, your, as the empire, English empire expanded. Make sense? So if you look at, if you know your um, European, or British history, um, if you look at the, where the British expanded into and where the Anglicans are the strongest, you'll see a very high correlation. There are, for example, um, no <laughs> Anglican churches that I'm aware of in Russia. Uh, there are many Anglican churches in Africa, for example. Okay? Um, 
So that's that. The, the current Anglican Communion are, are uh, 38 provinces worldwide. So each, each church, like we are the Episcopal Church, which is the Anglican branch of the Anglican Communion. In this country, it's called the Episcopal Church. We are, we are autonomous, sort of, we have our own presiding bishop, but we are tied into under the Archbishop of Canterbury. And there are 38 of these provinces worldwide. So if you go to Japan someday for a vacation, you will find the, it's called the Holy Catholic Church of Japan. Uh, Nippon Soke Kai, they did a report on it, that's how I know that. And uh, that is the Anglican province in Japan. So it's cool. And they're all, they're all um, loosely, well, they're all related to the Book of Common Prayer from England, but they're all translated into the local languages. So, and incidentally, the standard, if you're curious, the standard BCP, Book of Common Prayer, is the 1662 Book of Common Prayer in England, Elizabeth's prayer book. That's the standard, even today. So, as the empire expanded, so did the Anglican Communion. Um, the, let's talk about provinces of the Anglican Communion for a moment. Each province has a bishop called a primate. And a primate is not a monkey. It is a monkey, but it's not the, the meaning here. If you recall back to our very, our second session, I talked about how in the early church, all the bishops were equal, right? One bishop might have the role of calling the other bishops together, but they're still of equal vote and value. If any of you are on the vestry or have served on a vestry, you may know that I'm the rector. Uh, the rector is a member of the vestry, but I'm essentially the convener of the vestry. I can vote. I usually don't because it's just better that way, uh, in my opinion, personal opinion. But the, the primate is the convener of all of the uh, bishops within its jurisdiction. So the primate comes from this Latin word primus. Can you see it? Uh, Primus inter pares, which is uh, translated roughly uh, first among equals. The primate, whether you're the presiding bishop in our country, or the Archbishop of Canterbury, or some places have an archbishop, the Archbishop of uh, Rwanda, for example. But they're all first among equals. Their job is to convene their province, all their bishops. Um, Anglican, the Anglican Communion is the third largest denomination in the world. If you look there, there are 2.2 uh, billion Roman Catholics, uh, 210 million uh, Orthodox of varying stripes, and 82 million, I think it's closer to 84 million now, Anglicans. So despite the fact that the Episcopal Church is rapidly declining in number, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, the Anglican Communion itself is absolutely exploding, uh, primarily in South America and in Africa. And, and actually, the interesting thing is you're beginning to see an emergence of Anglicans in Europe again, which is cool, uh, which is in Southeast Asia, China. So it's really exciting. Uh, and this is, if you look at the history of the church, there's been books written about this. This is just how the church grows, right? The church always grows in places where it's most persecuted. So I actually have hopes for this country because that's coming down the pipe very quickly for us. The average, the average Anglican is Southern meaning south, south, uh, south of the equator, black and female, interestingly. So that's that, um, provinces of the Anglican Communion. So what makes an Anglican? Well, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury is, uh, again, he is the primus inter pares, first among equals amongst all the bishops of the Anglican Communion. And what he does 
is something called a Lambeth Conference. Lambeth Palace is essentially uh, like the Vatican for Anglicans. Lambeth Palace is where the Archbishop of Canterbury resides. And every 10 years, he holds something called the Lambeth Conference. And he invites, the Archbishop of Canterbury, invites all of the bishops of the Anglican Communion. And by his invitation is what makes you recognized as an Anglican bishop. Does that make sense? Inter incidentally, I'll show you something neat. You may wonder why it says Cantor up there. Uh, bishops actually historically would always sign their name. Uh, so for example, uh, Bishop Brewer here would sign his name Gregory Orlando, right? So you put the, your first name and then the, the place over which you are bishop. You can even do it in Latin if you wanted to. And then when you write your name as a bishop, you write your name with a cross in front of it. That means you're a bishop. Can you see that? Uh, sometimes you guys will see if I write a note, if I write my first name, I'll write Chris or Christopher as my birth name, my baptized name, and I'll put a cross after it. That means he's a priest, right? Where, why? I don't know, but that's how we do it. Uh, bishops put the cross before, uh, priests put their name after. Uh, my sending bishop in seminary, was, his name was Robert Duncan. He went by Bob, and he would write this in his name, and we used to call him Plus Bob, which is sort of funny. <laughs> if you are an archbishop, you put two, or the primate, you put two crosses in front. So you'll notice here, uh, Lambeth Conference is called by Cantuar, is Latin for Canterbury, and if there's two, two crosses there indicating it's the Archbishop of Canterbury. So um, again, does it matter? Not really, but it's sort of cool Anglican uh, minutia. So in 1978, the Lambeth Conference, they meet every 10 years. You're wondering, well, every 10 years would mean that there's going to be one this year. Well, not yet. It's going to actually, it's been postponed to the year 2020 uh, because of some, a lot of bishops in the South saying we're not going because of the increasing liberalism of the West. Uh, maybe we'll get to that today. But in any event, the next primates, uh, meeting, sorry, the next Lambeth Conference is scheduled for the year 2020. And Resolution 11 from 1978 says that no individual province should take action on major issues without first consulting the Lambeth Conference or the primates meeting. The primates meeting is when all the primates from each church get together, all 38 of them get together as a, as a group to discuss. And why that's important, if you recall back to session two, Whenever bishops were going to make big decisions about things, what did they do? They gathered together, right? Like the Council of Nicaea. So the idea is Lambeth Conference is essentially a council. It's not an ecumenical council because the Romans and the Orthodox aren't there. But it is how Anglicans work. We work in a conciliar model, meaning you call together the primates. You call together at Lambeth every 10 years all the bishops of the Anglican Communion. And that's how we do things. Make sense? So it's very old, it's very similar to the Orthodox model. If, uh, it's, um, and that's why I've said before, Anglicans are probably closer in ecclesiology, how the church runs, and even our theological method, how we arrive at truth claims, we're closer to the Orthodox than we are to the Romans, even though our liturgy is much more Western. Does that make sense, everyone? Okay, you guys awake today? You seem sleepy. Okay. Am I going too fast? No. Yes, Doug, quickly. Okay, so for example, if we're going to discern what to do about gay marriage, what we're going to do about admitting a new province in the communion, 
that's all made by gathering of a, uh, uh, by bishops and council. So, yeah. That's a good point, though. We would never, Anglicans would never get together and say, we're going to decide this, like a creed or something, in a council, because that would be, that would require everybody in the, you know, the Anglicans, the Romans, and the Orthodox to go too. One thing I'll point out here, because it's actually an important detail, women's ordination. Um, in, in the Episcopal Church, it's pretty much accepted. A lot of parts of the world, it is not. And when it, when it occurred back in, we're not going to get into this rabbit trail today, but just so you're aware, uh, when women started being ordained to the priesthood, it caused a lot of struggle in the communion. And actually, probably you could say rightly so. The reason being, moving into ordaining women to the priesthood, for, in many people's opinion, you're changing an understanding of what that is. So do you do it, do you go rogue and do it on your own, or do you do it by meeting of councils of bishops? Well, that's the question. Does it rise to the level, here's the open question, does it rise to the level of requiring a conciliar vote to do it, or can you just sort of do it and, hope, and just hope for the best? Uh, that's, a, that's a current, and the gay thing is another whole issue that we're wrestling with, gay marriage and so forth. The Episcopal Church, in many ways, has gone rogue in a lot of these things. No matter how you, what you think about women's ordination or gay marriage, ordinarily, as a Catholic understanding of ecclesiology, you don't make decisions unilaterally, you make them as a body. And the Episcopal Church has, in these decisions of past 40 years or so, gone pretty far off of what the communion has decided, and so we'll see what happens. Uh, I don't want to take any questions right now. I'm going to wait till the end because I want to make sure we have enough time. So, um, okay, so uh, in 1888, there's something called the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral. Quadrilateral means four, and these are the four sort of statements that make it sort of Anglican uh, self-understanding, that the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the revealed word of God. The Nicene Creed is a sufficient statement of the Christian faith, right? If someone says to you, like if you're a Presbyterian or a Baptist, they have, they have um, uh, creeds and statements of faith. If someone says to you, what's your statement of faith? It's the Nicene Creed, okay? Uh, that there are two sacraments, baptism and the supper of the Lord, uh, that are ministered to, with unfailing use of Christ's words. We'll get to that in a minute and the historic episcopate, apostolic succession, locally adapted. Does that make sense, everyone? Those are sort of the four things that Anglicans agreed upon during the emergence of this communion that were going to hold us together. Okay, so uh, this is cool. In 1867, there was the first Lambeth Conference. The Archbishop of Canterbury called together all the bishops of the Anglican communion, and um, they met in Lambeth at the palace for this, this uh, gaggle. There were 75 bishops in the entire world that were Church of England affiliated, right? This emerging, some of them were Americans, some of them were Scottish, some of them were Irish, because there's an Irish Anglican church. Uh, some of them were English. But that was pretty much what it looked like in 1867, right? Um, fast forward in 2008, which was the most recent conference, the 2018 conference has been postponed until 2020. Uh, in 2008, uh, there were 600, sorry, 760 bishops present, which is a huge growth. That is a 1,000% growth in 140 years. Um, uh, in 220, they're expecting over 900 bishops to be invited to that Lambeth conference. So I'd say going from, whoops, going from, uh, going from, 
75, 140 years ago, to probably 900 in two years' time, it's pretty significant growth, would you say? Uh, let me show you, this is, a, this is a really cool graphic. Here is a graphic of all of the attendees. Can you see it? Here's a graphic of the, all of the attendees at the Lambeth Conference in 1867. These are all bishops in the Anglican Communion. You'll notice one thing in particular, they're all white. Yeah? They're all, because they're all American, or they are British, or they are Irish, or they are English. In 2008, right, 100 and, you have that, which you maybe can see it, I don't know if you can see it well, but uh, that is the most recent statement, and you may not be able to see it very clearly, but it is, uh, there's a lot of darker faces in that crowd. And the point is, not only the number of people has grown exponentially from that to that, <laughs> but uh, just demographic demographically, it's shifted as well. So um, again, people will you know, claim the demise of the Anglican Communion, the demise of the Episcopal Church. That's not what I'm seeing. Call me naive, but you look at that, and you look at that, and I'm pretty hopeful. Amen? Amen. So uh, don't get discouraged. And in fact, um, one of the things which you notice about the people in the global south, which is where most of this growth is taking place, is they are very conservative and they are orthodox. And the reason being, they don't have the luxury of talking about many ways to truth because they get killed for it. <laughs> and, uh, and a lot of these, um, anybody here met Bishop Magangani when he was here a couple of years ago? He's the Bishop of Northern Malawi and they are in constant struggle with the Muslims in that part of the world. And uh, when, you're, when you can die for your faith, guess what? It becomes a lot more serious to you. And the church in those contexts grows because they speak the truth. There's an old canard in the church that the blood, I think I've told you this before, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You ever heard that before? It's true. And so uh, I'll sometimes say to people, when we say, oh, this, this country's going away from being a non-Christian nation. I actually think it's a good thing. And the reason is it makes what we offer as the church different from what the culture offers. I think, I, I've said this before, I think the biggest problem with the church now and historically in the Americas has been cultural Christianity, where people go to church twice a year and they sing songs, they talk about Jesus the Good Shepherd, which I'm preaching about today, and yet it doesn't ever really sink in. And so hopefully as we move into a post-Christian environment in this country, the church can be more distinct than it has been in the past 100 years or so. That's just my personal opinion. Your mileage may vary. So, um, the let's go back to the English church. I want to talk about a couple things about the way that we view ourselves as fundamentally the church of England that spread across the world as Anglicans. Um, there's something you need to be aware of called the Vincentian Canon. That right there, that guy, is St. Vincent of Laram. And he has a, a, um, he has a, a, a famous quote which reads as follows, the Holy Scriptures are the final authority in questions relating to Catholic truth. The church, this is great, and it's important, the church being the interpreter of those scriptures in the sense in which the fathers understood them. Okay? Let me unpack that a little bit. What that means is there is a, there is a very prevalent view in contemporary American evangelicalism, and it's just me and my Bible, right? That I sit down with the Bible, and what it says to me, it means. That's a really dangerous thing. Because you can take this book right here, okay? 
You can take this book right here, and if you proof text it enough, you can make this book say anything you want. You can. People have. What the Vincentian canon says is, okay, we don't, I certainly I don't, trust myself to be the interpreter of Scripture. It's not, it's not obvious, right? I mean, if there's some, something which is obvious, that's one thing. And questions of where it's not clear, how do we arrive at a truth claim? Well, the Roman church would say, I said so. The, uh, the, what we would say is, well, we look at what the church has always believed in a particular matter, and how have the church fathers understood it. In other words, we do our theology standing on the shoulders of others. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great quote somewhere that he says that Anglicans give vote to those who are not just merely walking around at the present time. In other words, we, uh, we give vote to the dead, and we should. Jesus says that he will send the Holy Spirit, which will lead us into truth. And so the idea being that uh, the Holy Spirit guides the church over time. Let me give you an example. Uh, infant baptism, okay? I, I was working with a guy once who was a non-denominational evangelical, and he was wrestling with infant baptism and this and this and this, and around and around and around and around and around. And around. And I said to him, you know, I said, uh, here's the problem with your theological method. And he said, what's that? And I said, you've got to figure out these things for yourself. And in fact, everybody that, from that worldview, everybody has to make their own decision. I said, I look at what the Council of Nicaea decided in the year 325, that infant baptism was permissible. Right? And he didn't like that very much. But, but... But again, the important thing is, and, and again, and, and also, there are things which remain a mystery. For example, uh, our predestination and election, right? God's sovereignty and human free will. What does the scripture say? Kind of both, actually. Which one's true? Kind of both, actually. If you look at the church fathers, for example, it's always been sort of not real clear. Or Christ's presence in the Eucharist. How does it work? I don't know. Jesus claims it's true. The church has always believed in the real presence of Jesus in the localized, in the bread and the wine. But the how, how it's in there, how Christ is in there, is a mystery. And people, if the church fathers have always sort of varied on, on the how. And so Anglicans go, well, we just call it the real presence. Does that make sense? So I guess the point I'm trying to make is, as Anglicans, we stand on the shoulders of our forebears and how God has operated and works, the Holy Spirit has worked over time, not just on my personal conscience and my personal opinion, but uh, how, the, how he's led the church throughout history. That's an important, it's an important differentiator between Anglican theological methodology and sort of um, contemporary evangelicalism. So again, if you have questions, write them down. I'll get to them at the end if you have any. I'd, I'd like to address them. Um, one more thing you'll run into sometimes as an Anglican is you'll hear it referred to as Hooker's three-legged stool. Uh, Richard Hooker was, the, was a famous bishop in the church. He wrote something called The Laws of Ecclesial, Ecclesiastical Polity. It is exceedingly boring to read, but it's very important. And you'll hear people talk about the three-legged stool. Anybody ever heard that before? Okay? It's not true. <laughs> um, what uh, people will say that Hooker... Well, Hooker's three-legged stool, and what, he, what they will say is, here is the truth, and there are three legs to that truth. There is scripture, there is reason, and there is tradition. And sometimes they'll throw in a fourth one, experience, which just comes out of nowhere. 
that's what people will say is hooker's three-legged stool. Hooker never said that. He never did. Because if you look at it, what that says is that truth is, is arrived at by scripture and tradition and reason. So if something is unreasonable, then reason trumps, that takes the day. Does that make sense, everybody? That's not what Richard Hooker said, but he described it as, as a three-knotted cord. And what he says is this, which actually makes a lot more sense and ties in with everything else we've said, that scripture is the ultimate authority, right? If scripture's clear, then that's what we, we base it on. Jesus is the son of God, for example, crystal clear. If, we're, if it's not clear, we go to uh, reason to try to figure it out, meaning how do we logically uh, arrive at a, 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 a confluence of two texts that seem to be uh, at odds. And then finally, tradition. How has the church always understood this to be? Does that make sense? And I'm just telling you that because you'll hear Hooker's three-legged stool knocked about, and it's, just, it's, it's, it's a fabrication of 19th century Episcopalianism. So, now you know. Scripture has always been considered the primary source of authority for Anglicans. Um, let's talk about sacraments for a little bit. We might actually pull this off. Uh, a sacrament. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is the technical uh, definition is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. What does that mean? Well, what it means is uh, sacraments are not just show. They're not just symbols. They actually do what they convey. They, they are actually means of grace. They are effective, you might say. So for example, um, some, some people have been baptized as babies, and later on, they come to a knowledge of faith, and they get baptized again. Well, it's unnecessary. If you want to do it, I guess it's okay, but it's unnecessary because you only need to be baptized once. And baptism is not just a symbol of your decision to follow Jesus, which is the sort of contemporary American Baptist model. Baptism actually is effective in that when you are baptized as an infant or as an adult, it actually removes the stain of original sin. Make sense? Or the Eucharist. It is not just a memorial meal remembering the Last Supper. It is actually receiving the body and blood of Christ. You will be confirmed next week when the bishop makes a cross of oil on your forehead, which is the same oil that you were chrismated with when you were a baby by a priest, which is what I do, and you'll be chrismated with at confirmation. It's the same stuff. It smells like patchouli. You know, sandalwood. Um, he will say you've been marked as Christ's own. It's not just a symbol. You might even feel it. I said to somebody who I baptized recently as an adult, I said, don't be surprised if you feel it. And afterwards, the person said, I did. So I've, I can't tell you how many times I've baptized babies. And anybody ever been to a baptism of a baby before? It's not easy as a priest, I'll be honest with you. But the babies are squirming around. And they're kind of being babies until you baptize them. And you go, I baptize you, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And inevitably, they go, I've seen, I can't, I've seen it a hundred times. Why? Because, it's, because baptism is not just a symbol, it is effective. A sacrament, and in our understanding, is, not, is, not, is an outward sign of an invisible and spiritual grace. They actually confer what they do. When I was, when I was ordained a priest, I was changed. So, how does the church recognize a sacrament? There's three ways. Form, matter, and intention. The form of the sacrament, 
how it's done, the matter of the sacrament, what is the stuff that you use, and the intention, what is the intention of the rite. For example, when Jesus at the Last Supper instituted the Eucharist, he used bread and wine, right? People say, well, can't we use grape juice? And the answer is no. It would be an invalid sacrament. It would not be the blood of Christ. Can we use rice cakes? Nope. It's not bread. Can we use, people say, can we have gluten-free bread? And I'll say, no. Why not? It's not bread. So what I've said to people is, listen, if you're gluten intolerant, for example, I'll say, just don't receive the bread, receive the wine. And the, you can receive either one and receive the fullness of the sacrament. You don't have to have both. And they're like, oh, that's a good idea. So, but the point is that what you, the, the matter of the sacrament, meaning the stuff that's involved, has to conform with what the church has always used. There's form, the, 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 the things that are done in the right. There's the matter, the stuff involved. And there's the intention of the right. What, do you, what does the right intend? Notice something important. It is not the intention of the celebrant. Remember before I said apostolic succession guarantees that the sacraments that I perform or any other priest performs are valid whether or not I believe them or not. Right? That's the whole point of apostolic succession. So the intention of the right is what is, what is, the, what is the right you're doing intend to confer? You may go to Eucharist someday, and there might be a person celebrating the Eucharist who doesn't believe a whit about the real presence. It doesn't matter. As long as the intention of the right that they're using uses, is the intention of the right is there, the sacrament is valid no matter what the celebrant believes. And thanks be to God for that, or else we'd all be in trouble. Right? You guys with me? Okay. Um, let's move along. Uh, sacraments. How many are there? That's a very good question. Are there two? Are there seven? And the answer is yes. Um, there are two sacraments referred to as dominical sacraments. Dominical meaning coming, domine, Latin, right, for God. These are two sacraments that are instituted by Christ himself. They are baptism, right, and they are the Eucharist. Those two sacraments, baptism and Holy Eucharist, are considered, ready for this, this is great Anglican phraseology, those two sacraments are considered generally necessary for salvation. And generally, generally doesn't mean uh, usually, it means generally for all people. So for example, for, for salvation, two things have to occur, right? Normally speaking, you're baptized and you receive communion at some point. So these two sacraments are given by, they're given special role, uh, baptism and the Holy Eucharist, because they are generally necessary for salvation, okay? There are also five other sacraments that are useful and efficacious, but you don't have to have them to be saved. Uh, you, need, you can be confirmed, but you don't have to be confirmed to be a Christian. Uh, you can go to the Sacrament of Reconciliation, where a priest hears your confession, which if you've never done, I would commend it to you. It is extremely powerful, and uh, there's nothing you've done that I've not done myself or heard somebody else has done, believe me. So if you ever come to me for confession, you're not going to make me upset. Uh, holy orders. Not all of you need to be priests to be saved. Uh, anointing of the sick. You don't need to be anointed to be saved, and you don't need to be married to be saved. Do you see my point? These five are considered sacramental rites. They are good. They are efficacious. The Holy Spirit is conveyed in them, but they are not generally necessary. So you will sometimes hear Episcopalians argue about two sacraments or seven. There's a differentiator. The two are necessary. The other five are um, 
optional, you might say, or contingent upon your life. If you're a single person, you don't need to get married. Make sense? You guys got it? Okay, we're going to make it. I want to talk about Anglican orders. Um, orders are the, uh, the validity of bishops, right? So it's a huge topic because Roman Catholics say Anglican orders are invalid. At least they did. Uh, this is important. Um, anybody have Roman Catholic friends here? Sure. A couple, right? A few of you? Yeah. Okay, so this is important for you to be aware of in case it comes up during conversation of why you're being confirmed or received and they want to know what's going on. Um, Archbishop Parker was in 1559. He was the first of the Anglican bishops that sort of uh, our, our orders flow from there. Um, so his, his consecration was very, very important. At least it, it was. It's not so much anymore. Um, so he was consecrated in 1559. He's the progenitor of Anglican orders separate from the Roman Catholic Church. In 1896, that's, uh, someone do the math, 330-odd years later, the Pope, Pope Leo, uh, declared Anglican orders absolutely null and utterly void. Now let me ask you a question. Why do you think in 1896 Pope Leo cared? Take a wild guess. What's happened in the Church of England between 1559 and 1896? It's spread. It's called the, the British Empire. And so the Romans go, uh-oh, we got a problem here. And, uh, and people are become, going to Anglican churches rather than going to Roman churches. So the, the Bishop of Rome declares Anglican orders null and void. The document is called Apostolice Curiae. You can look it up. It's boring, but it's interesting. This document right here, it's a papal bull. Um, it is based upon the defect of form and intention in the 1552 ordinal. Let's not worry about that today, but I want to point something out to you that the Roman Church declared Anglican orders null and void based upon defects of the sacraments used. Um, this is the Anglican response. A year later, Sapatius Officio, this is Frederick Temple, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he says, okay, Rome, um, our right was based upon an earlier version of your right. Does that make sense? So the Anglican right was based upon an earlier version of the Roman right. And so if you invalidate what we do, then you've invalidated your own. It's a brilliant argument. And it's actually airtight, in my opinion. So the point I want you to see here, again, if this ever comes up, and friends, particularly if you've got any uh, Roman Catholic friends, they will ask you, oh, those, those aren't real, real bishops and priests. Well, not so fast, because there's a lot more to it. And Archbishop Temple, in this response from the Anglican Church, uh, Sapatius Officio, says, we were following an earlier form, and if you invalidate our form, then you invalidated your own orders. And Rome says, no. <laughs> that was pretty much it, which is a non-answer. Non in the meantime, since that period of time, um, the Anglican Church has had Orthodox and uh, Old Catholic orders infused into our apostolic line. So even if apostolic curiae were true, the, the Roman um, denial of the validity of, of Anglican orders, that whole situation has been rendered moot by historical events that have taken place since. Is that clear? You may not care. I do. You should. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Um, we don't need to talk about this, really. Basil Hume, um, you don't need to worry about him. And then finally, 
Parting thoughts. Um, I would say, here's my summary, and we've got a few minutes for questions, actually, which we can tackle. Uh, what is it? What is this Anglican thing? Well, one thing is interesting is, uh, again, going back to the Anglican versus Roman Catholic view, uh, one thing which has emerged in the past five years or so is something called the Anglican Ordinariate, where the Bishop of Rome has taken Anglican churches into the Roman Catholic Church and kept their liturgy in place, essentially, but made them Roman Catholics. And I've got friends of mine that have done this. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing. And the reason I bring that up is I think the days where the Western churches, the Roman church and the Anglicans, for example, could fight over dumb stuff, I should say dumb stuff, relatively insignificant things, those days, I think, are coming to a close based upon the continued um, decline in Western Christianity in general and the threat of Islam. And I think, I pray, that there can be some sort of rapprochement between the Church of Rome and the Church of England, the Anglicans. I pray that's the case, not in my lifetime probably, but maybe in my grandkids' lifetime. But in the meantime, Anglicanism, we claim to be both Catholic and Protestant, right? Maintaining apostolic succession, leaning on the Church Fathers as the interpreters of the faith, like the Orthodox do, and the Romans do, but insisting on the primacy, the prim primary role of Scripture. Um, the Bishop of Rome, the current the, uh, the Pope, uh, we won't, didn't get into this at all, but has something called infallibility, where the Pope can make a statement which is binding upon a Roman Catholic for salvation. So, so for example, I was uh, going up to John's Island a couple weeks ago to meet somebody for lunch, and there's a great uh, uh, Irish uh, Catholic guard at the at the at the uh, uh, at the guardhouse. You know who he is? Super guy. Hey, Father, how you doing today? So we're talking, and he said, I'm a Roman Catholic, but I don't believe in the infallibility of the Pope. And I said, well, welcome to the Episcopal Church. Because <laughs> you, if you're a Roman Catholic, you have to believe in the infallibility of the Pope. You have to believe in the immaculate, con the, uh, immaculate conception of Mary and some other things. So let's not worry about that today. Great conversation, but for another day. Uh, I would say this, though, that Anglicanism is messy. We don't have a magisterium. We don't have a pope. So we don't have somebody who says that my way or the highway. Changes and uh, changes in Anglicanism take a long time. It's messy. Uh, but, you know, Jesus is in control. Amen to that. And so uh, I want to leave you with my personal view and that Anglicanism, one of the reasons we are under such attack in some parts of the world um, internally and externally is because we're growing like crazy. And that means that the Lord has blessed us, which means, you know, expect a counterattack. That's my personal view. So uh, many people will say the Episcopal Church is, you know, going the way the dodo bird. I don't buy it. And I don't buy it not because of the Episcopal Church. I don't buy it because I believe in Jesus. And I believe in the, the, uh, this, exper this uh, church which has has uh, grounded on the shoulders of the fathers. So, that's what I've got. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.